Hi, and welcome to Leechfest, a medical history podcast where we feel our own breast tissues for lumps. Because today we're talking about cancer, specifically breast cancer. What is it? What's the history of it? How do we treat it? And can you beat cancer with a good attitude? No, <laughs> you can't. My name is Mia. And I'm Salem. And before we explore the fascinating and often horrific world of cancer, how have you been? <clears throat> uh... If you always ask me, I always have to be the first one to go, and I always it's because I do bit, the intro. I know, but I always feel a bit awkward because you're like, "How have you been?" I'm like, "I've been good. <laughs> um, I've been fine." The alternative is that I go like, but before we start that, I'm going to tell you about my day. <laughs> Maybe we should do that sometimes because it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be five minutes of me talking, and then you're like, "I've, I've also been I've also do." <laughs> um, no, but but I'm fine. I've been working a lot. I feel like these past few weeks have been kind of stressful for me. Yeah. Um, but it's the weekend now, we're recording on a Sunday, and I have taken yesterday to rest, I didn't do any work, so I feel a bit better. That's good. Um, yeah, end of the year is always like a stressful period, I feel like. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I mean, I'm just gonna start my thesis soon, so I've been trying to like apply to different labs, and I'm also doing an internship in a lab right now, so it's like, like a full job, yeah. and also trying to figure out where I'm going to do my thesis, which yeah. to me feels like kind of an important decision. So it's just like, it's been stressful. Yeah. It's a lot of balls in the air. A lot of like, balls in a lot the air, of yeah. things happening. A lot of lumps in the air, you might say. <laughs> you might say that. Um, but I've been good. We went to, um, to a cabaret show yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was really, really nice. Did it you was, like it? I loved it. It yeah. was amazing. You were screaming the loudest in the audience. <laughs> I was a little bit worried that I was screaming a bit too much. I was hooting and hollering. Yeah, but I think they appreciate it. I mean, like, at the beginning of the show, they were like, you know... Please, if, if you see something you like, you need to let us know. You need to let us know, yeah. Because I, I feel like it would be awkward if you're, like, taking off your pants and nobody and says dead, dead, dead silence. silence. <laughs> like, can you gotta give me something, yeah. you know what I mean? They said that, and then for the subsequent two hours, I was just continuously like, woo! <laughs> yeah, I my throat hurts, and, like, my jaw muscles hurt mm -hmm. from screaming. So if, um, if we sound a little... Rustly, it's not that we're sick, it's that we've been to see very bodacious MILFs <laughs> take their clothes off. Well, and that has led us to okay, scream. Okay, but you can't put it like that, it's artistic. It is artistic, it's Some very them, artistic. It's very artistic. Some of them actually, like, you know, you had like two categories of performances. Some of them were very, like, I think classic, burlesque, mm -hmm. classic cabaret, where it was like very technical in a sense and mm -hmm. very like you know um like traditional perform like traditional dance moves and you know yeah. kind of like what you would expect which was great yeah but then other people came in and did like um i would say like an artsier performance and mm -hmm. those are actually the ones that i really really enjoyed like we had a girl um <laughs> that was my favorite performance where um with a cake yeah the, this girl um baked a cake for the performance it's nice and cake. A very beautiful cake, like pink with this like beautiful frosting decoration. And at the beginning of the performance, she played a bunch of um, uh, voicemails from ex-boyfriends who like dumped her through text or through through call. Just being like douchebags. Yeah, just being yeah. douchebags. Like, yeah, sorry, like you're not boy uh, girlfriend you're material. Not material. Uh, sorry. Oh, like, I got my... together with my ex. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, and she, she also kind of like got introduced as like, she's crazy about free things, love boys and cake. Mm -hmm. Um, and then she, only one of those things doesn't make you cry. Yeah, exactly. And so she, she, she danced, you know, she, whatever she did her, uh, 
she did the dance, the routine, and the, yeah. the routine, and then she sat on the cake, mm-hmm. um, which was really fun. And I don't know, I thought it was really cool. She grinded on that cake. She, yeah, she, she rolled around on the stage. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, Very fun show, I will say. Yeah, I recommend anyone <laughs> to see burlesque if they if they get the opportunity. I also love how it's such a um, feminine space. It reminds yeah. me a lot of. Um, pole dancing mm. um like 80 percent of the people were there there were women were women yeah. and a lot of them were visibly queer which yeah. is also really fun but i used to do pole dancing and the community was very much like that mm. also like primarily women very supportive of each other mm. very like d- diverse community also um so i thought that was really cool yeah those are great yeah <laughs> how have you been otherwise <laughs> i've been same i've been working a lot as well yeah um because i've been I've been busy politicking because mm-hmm. end of the year is always like a lot of a lot of stuff to have to do, and I've also been trying to. I'm still hiring people for like YouTube stuff. I still haven't done that. You've been I'm hiring st- them for for episodes. I haven't had time to hold my interviews. If you're listening to this and you're like, "Where the fuck is my interview?" I haven't had time. I'm really sorry, actually, because like I I really want to. Yeah. But I just haven't had time to do it, like because it takes time to like go through all the resumes and stuff like that. And you're also hiring people in your in politics. In politics, yeah. yeah. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So I've been just working, um, but that's why also why I appreciated some burlesque, mm-hmm. some tasteful, some tasteful semi nudity um, to take artistic semi nudity, mm-hmm. some artistic side boob. Um, so I've been doing that. Some artistic full boob, more like. <laughs> no, they they had the nipple pasties, but yeah, I would say there's more than side boob. That's true. <laughs> Okay, so let's, um, we, yes, as always, we want to thank our patrons for, for listening to our episode, supporting us. We have to, for every episode, we want to give a nice thanks because, you know, our podcast would not be here today if it wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we also want to thank our patrons for supporting us, also keeping the podcast going. But we want to give a very special shout out uh, to Norma Perez Ortega. Thank you, Norma, for helping us produce this podcast, and we hope you enjoy this episode about breast cancer. <laughs> a very uplifting topic. A very uplifting topic. It's but a like, medical history podcast. You're not med- going to find, like, the happy disease. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we try to make them funny, but it is a medical history podcast, all and medicine these- is about illness. All of these things will kill you. Yeah. Every episode will kill you. But thank you again, and um, we'll we'll try to make it extra good for you. Thank you. Okay, so this month we're talking about cancer, but the thing about cancer is um, it's an extremely complex and diverse field. So for this episode specifically, we're going to be talking about breast cancer, because if we talk about cancer in general, it's going to take us 8 million years. (laughs) Oh, can 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 I share a joke? That Alice of Asandum said sure. on a podcast. I don't remember which podcast it was, but it's a great joke. Because, um, like, during the 2020 election, Joe Biden said that as part of his medical promise, he is going to cure cancer. I remember that. And it's such an absurd claim because because of what you say. Because like, cancer is just, like, a, it's a catch-all term for, like, thousands and thousands of, of diseases that kind of look the same. But but it's it's a field rather than, like, one mm. specific issue that mm. you can fix. Mm. Um so saying that you're going to cure cancer is basically the same as saying that you're going to cure a virus. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, good. Like, we can't, and we can't have an episode that's just virus. Virus. Yeah, that's good. 
Um, yeah, so we're talking about breast cancer and I have to say, like, even just taking breast cancer, like, there's so much more that I could talk about. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we're gonna try to make it, like, as comprehensive as we can while also not going over an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> Our last episode became way too long. Way too so long. So this time we're trying to be short. Yeah, but we might talk about other kinds of cancer in other episodes if this one goes well. Um, cancer is actually a, a particular interest of mine, and I've actually worked with cancer in two different labs, and it's really interesting to work with. So I think this is going to be a very, very good episode. Breast cancer is the most diagnosed type of cancer in women, and accounts for one out of ten of all cancer diagnoses. There are certain risk factors that are associated with breast cancer, uh, like age and gender. Like, you know, the older you are, the more likely you are to develop cancer, and gender... Most breast cancers are in women, although it is also possible to be an XY person and be diagnosed with breast cancer. But, you know, you don't really hear about that super much. Mm. A family history of breast cancer also increases one's chance of developing it due to certain genetic factors that are inherited. But this is mostly relevant if the family member developed cancer quite early in life, um, usually in their 50s or earlier. It also depends on the kind of breast cancer, right? Because I, not to say too much, but I have had multiple family members who have had, uh, who have had cancer and breast cancer. Uh, and I have been told that I don't have to worry because it's not the genetic kind. Mm -hmm. um, this was not told to me by doctors. It was told to me by family members mm -hmm. who are not doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's as far as they understood it. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, so I guess it also depends a bit like on, yeah, I guess it depends on so many factors. Yeah. So what it could like what could happen maybe this is what they're talking about is like there are certain mutations they're called germline mutations so they're mutations in the in the cells that get transmitted uh to offspring mm. but the cancer can also develop due to somatic somatic mutations which are mutations that occur during the lifetime of the person mm. so not um yeah they're not inherited from their parents mm. so those somatic mutations you don't inherit mm. um so those are the ones that you don't really yeah yeah you don't have those mutations you no. don't inherit them so then they have nothing to do with you cool there are also some reproductive risk factors including early menstruation uh, which is usually defined as 12 years or younger having children late or reaching menopause late um, and the common element here is the person's exposure to estrogen for a long time um, but then there are also factors that end up protective for breast cancer like having children very early in life and also having a lot of them <laughs> So if you want to be protected from breast cancer, just have like 10 kids and you're going to be fine. So is that how it works? Like the more you have, the safer you are? I, I mean, I don't know for sure what the risk, like what the statistics of it is, but it is a protective factor. But I also think that it's like, you know, there's like a ceiling to how protected yeah. you can be. Um, if you have a hundred kids, you're not going to become mm, immune from, yeah, all, exactly, from all disease. Exactly. And it just depends on like what, if you have like other risk factors or other protected, mm. protective factors, if you carry genetic mutations, like with cancer, there's so many factors that play a role. Mm. Um, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Also, I'm realizing that I'm quite gravelly right now. So I apologize in advance. I, again, this is just because I've been screaming all night yesterday. Mm. I hope it doesn't, uh, it's not too annoying. It's the power of bodacious mills. Yeah. Anyway, so estrogen exposure is like an important element in breast cancer development. And when I was researching this episode, I actually thought about trans people and like trans women who take estrogen and progesterone, which mm -hmm. is also 
progesterone is also like something that is linked to breast cancer. Mm. Yeah, when when I go to for a medical checkup for estrogen levels, they check my oh they, they check. check my breast tissues and stuff like that mm-hmm. every time. That's good because therapeutic or supplemental estrogen and progesterone also can increase the risk for breast cancer. And this is usually seen in people taking hormonal contraceptives and also trans women who take estrogen or progesterone. And there have been some studies on breast cancer risk in trans women, and it seems that the risk is higher than in cis men, but is lower than in cis women. So that's also kind of interesting. Another interesting thing is that some types of breast cancers have estrogen receptors, Um, that estrogen binds to, and that causes increased proliferation of cancer cells. Mm. So they actually use the estrogen to get stronger (laughs) and bigger. With the power of estrogen. With the power of estrogen. And so a major type of therapy for this kind of cancer is a hormone therapeutic that is an estrogen receptor antagonist called tamoxifen. I don't know if you've heard of it. It I think it's like one of the most sold uh, cancer therapeutics. Like it's really huge. And basically what this drug does is it binds to the receptors without activating them. And it prevents actual estrogen from binding to these receptors. And and like that blocks... Just sort of blocks it over. Yeah, it blocks it over and like prevents the cancer from using estrogen. Yeah, smart. And this is... I think my family members have that. As far as how cancer develops, it can be due to DNA damage, which is common to all cancers. But it can also be due to or exacerbated by certain inherited factors like inherited DNA defects and also pro-cancerous genes. The most common genes associated with breast cancer are BRCA1 and BRCA2, which maybe you've heard about. Mm, Um, And then the DNA defects usually include mutations, but also deletions and large um, chromosome rearrangements, which is kind of fucked up because it's basically like a huge span of genes, like chromosome portions, just getting like switched around that's messed up um i know it's messed up but there are also like a few other genes but i'm not gonna go into all of them because then i'm just like naming naming genes (laughs) anyway the BRCA genes they code for proteins that are normally involved in maintenance of genome stability so you know it keeps the genome in check um (laughs) which you want which you want yeah um and they do that specifically through the process of dna repair so like if there's a mutation um, the proteins that the BRCA genes code for is like fix. It's like putting, yeah. you know, like glue and scot. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like a spell check. Um, I remember that part of biology. Nice. And so, you know, if you have mutations that impair the normal functioning of BRCA genes, then that spell check or that um, mechanism is not going to work anymore. So that's how you can like start accumulating mutations. And of course, these mutations then can cause the cells to become cancerous. The BRCA genes are very penetrant, which means that individuals that carry the allele will generally express the phenotype, and these genes can confer up to 80% lifetime risk of breast cancer. So, like, this is kind of an interesting thing with genes, is that some of them can be highly penetrant and some are not penetrant, and what that means is, like, the like the likelihood that they will actually affect you if you carry that mutation. Mm. And the BRCA genes are, like, if you have at least one allele of the of the mutated the gene then like for sure you're gonna mm. you're gonna it's carry a very that high risk, risk. Yeah. it's a very high risk yeah um so if you have a family member who has had breast cancer and if you know that they are carriers of any risky genes like BRCA or any other um you should probably keep an eye on it so you know do like uh, regular screenings if 
you are able to check your breasts for lumps, things like that. Yeah. And also another thing that I wanted to say is that the BRCA1 and 2 genes are also so- associated with ovarian and fallopian tube cancer, prostate cancer, and a few others. So it's like these genes are always it's, it's they're not like a these genes are bad boys they're they're so bad they're like rowdy if, boys yeah exactly like if you have mutations imitation in one of them it's a little risky anyway we've talked about common causes for breast cancer but did you know that there are quite a few different types of breast cancer as well so it's not just like there's so many different kinds of cancer mm. like for different organs for different um tissues different blood cancers all of that there's like uh, like specific subtypes of mm. cancer i mean obviously but still it's still. kind of fucked up yeah do they um, affect like different parts of the breast or are they just different types that affect the same part of the breast th- there are there are some that affect different parts of the breast like there's i think tubular cancer um which affects like the milk ducts like duct- i think it's called ductal cancer um and there's another one I think maybe it's like the mammary glands, but I don't, I don't remember right now. But there's definitely different ones that affect different parts of the breast. Yeah. But then mostly what I'm going to talk about is um, like different cancers that, that have different molecular characteristics. And that might not seem super important, but actually is because it can make some treatments completely ineffective. Mm. So in total, there are 20 major types and 18 minor subtypes that have been defined of breast cancer only. Um, I'll only talk about a few of them because, again, this is complicated and it's it would take forever. So breast cancers have been traditionally classified based on their morphologies and molecular signatures. And that was the case in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Firstly, one parameter that people would look at is the shape of the nuclei of the cancer cells. So cancer cells are kind of fucked up looking. Like they're usually... Like they look very different from normal cells. Yeah. Like they're... They're usually um, kind of like deformed. They're very different in shape. They can be much bigger than regular cells. Their nuclei are also usually like not like they, it doesn't look like spherical. It can have like different shapes. They can have multiple multiple nuclei. Um, so you can kind of like look at the morphology um, of the of the cancer cells and be able to to say like okay, this is. This is cancer, <laughs> but you can also but you can also like sort of see depending on how the the cancer cells look like, like how fucked up they are. You can sort of tell how advanced the cancer is, and that's of course um, that can help you like give a prognosis, like how how bad it is. Yeah. Another parameter is the mitotic rate, so how fast the cells are multiplying, and more multiplication obviously means worse prognosis. Mm. Um, then there's tubule formation, which is where the cancer cells form tubular-shaped um, structures, structures yeah. exactly, as well as tumor size and lymph node involvement. So those are another two parameters that people look at. So how how big it is and whether or not it's spread to the lymph nodes. Yeah. But of course, there's also molecular signatures that are involved. So for example, a, a really common type of breast cancer is um, it's called luminal type, which is a cancer that expresses both estrogen and progesterone receptors. And the thing about this type of cancer is that when estrogen and progesterone binds to their respective receptors, it leads to a sort of activation cascade, which makes the cancer cells proliferate more. So I've already mentioned this, but I just, it's kind of an important type of cancer. So I wanted to to mention it here too. Mm. And like people have estrogen and progesterone, like it just exists in the body. And estrogen and progesterone is important for like normal 
human body functioning. Yeah. So you can't exactly like just yeah, take every, it out. Everyone, everyone has it. Because it's like it's used for the body, but also the cancer uses it. So how do you fight something that the body also yeah. needs? It's like, you know, the, the cancer also needs water. Yeah, exactly. So, so do you. You can't really remove that part. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, there's um, there's tamoxifen, which binds to estrogen receptors in the cancer and blocks them, so the real estrogen can't bind. So your reg- like your body still uses estrogen, but it's just the cancer that can't use it anymore. Yeah. Um, and there's also similar drugs that act on progesterone receptors. But another thing that you can do is actually inhibit the production of estrogen in the body entirely. But this, of course, comes with a bunch of side effects like osteoporosis, uh, development, yeah. menopause symptoms and others. Because like, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this type of... This is why it's important for uh, trans women and postmenopausal cis women to take your hormone replacement therapy <laughs> so you don't lose your bones. Yeah, exactly. But... You know, I'm naming some side effects, but actually this kind of cancer is probably one of the most manageable mm. because there are these like molecular signatures, these this, these receptors that are actually kind of easy to work with. Yeah. Like people who have this kind of cancer have a 40% to 90% overall five-year survival rate, which is really, really good. Mm. So, you know, it, it sounds like it's not good, but actually it's kind of good. Mm. Another type of breast cancer is called HER enriched, meaning that the cancer cells are positive for human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, which is called HER2, which is a protein that activates a cascade inside the cell, causing increased cancer cell proliferation. And one drug that is used against this protein is an antibody called trastuzumab, that binds to the HER2 receptor and causes cell apoptosis. So the cells that express this protein um, are marked for for self-destruction, <laughs> um, which again, very useful that they express this protein. The last major type of breast cancer is one that does not have any of these receptors, no ER, no PR, no HER2, and it's called basal-like. Uh, it's a basic-ass breast cancer. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm joking here, but actually it's not very funny because... This cancer is the one that has the worst prognosis because mm, it's um, the hardest to treat. Yeah, it because doesn't have it doesn't have anything yeah. that therapy can can target. So what you have is chemotherapy and radiation and you know surgical yeah. uh, measures. The but, whole trilogy of traditional <laughs> cancer treatment. Yeah, but it's not. Um, you know, that's very difficult to. Like, it's very difficult to remove a cancer entirely using yeah. those free things. Like, usually you need a more targeted approach. But, mm. you know, if this cancer doesn't really express things that we know how to work with, then it's kind of hard to to make it, like, targeted. So what is usually done if the cancer is basal-like or triple negative is a lumpectomy, which is where the doctor removes the lumps in the breast and potentially also the affected lymph nodes. Um, maybe a mastectomy where the breast is removed and then radiation and chemotherapy. And that's kind of like, you know, the best you've got. But there's a few other treatments that are coming up. They're being developed. Um, and I'm going to talk about them in the last section. But for now, this is like the basic, like the, the b- basic foundational treatments that we have yeah. for this kind of cancer. So this is a very like old fashioned way to classify cancer. 
Um, and now we know that cancer is a very heterogeneous disease with very different properties in every person due to individual genetic, epigenetic, and transcriptomic changes, which can affect cancer progression and development and treatment in really unexpected ways. Yeah, because um, they're also like unique and different. Yeah, and they also change over time. <laughs> so Snowflake-ass disease. Yeah, so while molecular profiling is quite common... Um, a new era of prognostics and treatment using gene expression profiling is underway. Um, and I'm going to be talking about like genetic testing later in the episode. Mm. But now I'll give the word to you. You're going to talk to us about the history of breast cancer. So let's talk history. You know we're going to talk about ancient Greeks. Because <laughs> they come up in every goddamn episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Not yet, because we're gonna. I'm gonna start first with a little um, wider history of cancer generally, and then we're gonna like narrow the scope into breast cancers. And I think it's so interesting that we're starting with breast cancers because breast cancer is one of the cancers that ancient peoples had easiest access to treat and had most like literature about treating. Mm. Um, well, it's kind of a visible cancer, right? I'm thinking yes. that like probably breast cancer and like melanoma may have been the first cancers to be treated. Because yeah. like, you know, if you it, have like pancreatic cancer, like you're, you're not, not going to see that. You're not, gonna, you're, not gonna, you're not really going to see that. Yeah. Um, breast no. cancer is kind of on the surface. But that is uh, that is exactly why those mm. those types of cancers sort of like come up very early on in, medi- in medical history about cancer. So the history of cancer goes back to uh, long before there were even humans to have it, uh, because that's how cells do. In my first draft of this, of this script, I had the first evidence of cancer ever, which is in dinosaur bones <laughs> from 3 million BC. Uh, that didn't feel very relevant to the episode generally. It's, so, it's fucked up that animals get cancer. I, get, like, I mean, it's not fucked up, but it's a little weird. But Plants also, can also get cancer. Yeah, I know. Which is, which is weird, right? And the fact that trees can get cancer. Yeah. And, and, the, and the thing that fucks with me, fucks with me even more is that for most trees, it's fine. Like, it's, it's not that big of a disease yeah. for, for a lot of trees. Because they're just like, okay, the nutrients are just going to go around it. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> just like, what? No, but like, I mean, it, make, you know, it makes sense. It's like caused by mutations. But... It's still silly. Tree with cancer, and also um, and the fact that the, f- the fact that they're fine with it yeah. bothers me a little bit. Like yeah. you're a tree, how are you better handled to take care of this than we as a civilization are? I don't like and like you know thinking about it now. It's like I don't I don't know why. Like why have we not developed some sort of like adaptive mechanisms? You know, because cl- trees yeah. clearly have. But I don't know. Like I would need to think about it. Yeah. Um, if but- you know tree cancer science, let us know. <laughs> Um, but I think there's some animals that don't develop cancer. They're like I think that's a myth. Is it? I think it's. Isn't a myth. that some sort of like weird jellyfish that doesn't? Oh well, that's true. Maybe some weird jellyfish don't actually because they're jellyfish they're based, they're weird. barely cells. They're they're barely animals. Jellyfish. What are they? Well, they are technically animals, but they're they're like barely animals because <laughs> okay, okay, this is a complete side tangent. But like some some jellyfish, like they don't have brains, they don't move, and their life cycle involves rooting themselves to the to the ocean floor and becoming a and basically becoming a plant for a little bit and then they detach and then they become a jellyfish again and then they float around and then they attach and they just do that over and over again for thousands of years and like yeah, if, but, if, I mean, but if you don't if move how are you just not just a just a plant okay but like like what what distinguishes a plant from from an animal different kinds of cells the cells are different really 
Yeah, there's animal and plant cells. Is that the is that the defining difference? Anyway, jellyfish. I, this is a complete side tangent. We we I need to. This is very interesting, but I think we need to drag it back to <laughs> breast cancer. <laughs> this is not the marine biology podcast. Um. So let's talk about cancer. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. No, no, go ahead. Okay. I I mean I was kind of painting myself or. Uh, painting myself in a corner because I, I don't know anything about animal biology so I was like starting to talk about jellyfish but I was making it up as I as I went <laughs> so I'm glad you stopped me because I would have reached a point you would have where... incriminated yourself yeah yeah but anyway jellyfish are weird animals. they're weird animals mm. and I some of them live forever. maybe they get cancer maybe maybe they and so, like some of them live forever some of them never die yeah like I feel like maybe that's the kind of jellyfish that doesn't develop cancer because like their cells don't age and cells aging is a major... Well, they do component. age, but the thing is they, they go through a life cycle. So when their cells age to a certain point, they, then they, they, get they transition into a new life cycle. That's when they become a plant again. And then they have new types of cells. And then, then they are reborn as a sort of, as a new jellyfish. But it's technically the same individual, but the cells are completely replaced. That's weird. Uh, right, it's weird, right? <laughs> Anyway, I wish I was a jellyfish. We are going to. <laughs> I'm dragging this back to breast cancer. So the first mention that might be about cancer in written history um, is in the Babylonian legal code of Hammurabi, uh, from Better Call Saul fame. <laughs> the what? <laughs> he mentions it in Better Call Saul. <laughs> The Code of Hammurabi, because uh, uh, the Code of Hammurabi is a long list of rules and laws about how things should be and how should how they should be done, um, how much things sh- and how much things should just cost. Right? Is that when he um, he defends the the skaters? Yeah, and he talks tells... to the criminals. Like, ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? Yeah, right. Eye for an eye type of thing. Yeah, right. Okay, I remember this. It's because it's one of the first ever legal codes, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's divided into various sections and. Uh, I'll get back to details mm-hmm. specifically in, in, a, in a little bit. But this list dates back to more than 1700 BCE, uh, so it's very old, and it contains wonderful laws such as, if a man breaks into a house, he shall be hung in front of that very house. <laughs> um, but also uplifting laws such as, if a man is in debt and the storm god Avad makes it so his field does not grow that year, then the man shall not pay interest. On, on the death of that year, which is more progressive than modern tax laws, I feel like. Um, but as I said, it, con- it contains sections. Most of them have to do with crimes, but some of them have to do with m- like medical practice. Mm-hmm. And it contains a law about tumor removal. And it says that if a doctor can remove a tumor from the eye with a bronze lancet, then the doctor shall have 10 shekels of silver, but only if he is a citizen. Uh, if the patient is a plebeian, then it's five silver. And if the patient is a slave, the owner must the owner of the slave must pay the doctor two silver shekels. Wait, if he is a citizen, meaning the doctor or the patient? The patient. Okay. So basically, patients have to uh, oh, pay. Okay. Ha- patients mm-hmm. have patients are a bit more expensive, but it's also it it, it pays to treat. It, like, it's it's so that doctors will give priority to higher ranking citizens yeah, uh, yeah. or like members of society. And also, if he removes. A tumor from the eye of a slave, the owner of the slave must pay two silver. Because I guess it's like, it's like repairing their property. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it gets worse too, because uh, there's also punishments involved here yeah. if the doctor fucks up. So if the doctor destroys the man's eye or the patient dies during the procedure, the doctor's hand must be cut off. Um, but if a slave dies, the doctor just has to replace the slave with a slave of equal value. 
Because, again, it's, it's property. It's property, yeah. Um, also, like, damn, you don't have a lot of room for error. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, if you, if you completely... You fuck if you up fuck once. Up, well, if you destroy the eye completely, like, if you, if, if you have a tumor and you, if you make it worse, basically, then it's like, oh. Yeah, but I mean... Off the hand goes. <laughs> I just feel like it would be pretty easy to, like... <laughs> I guess uh, you practice on slaves to like to rem- to destroy the function of the eye. If like you have a tumor in the eye, so I think this specifies actually destroying the eye itself. If the function of the eye, like the the the, the eye globe, mm-hmm. like if so, if you have to like if you have to like hollow out the eye entirely, mm-hmm. then that I think that's what's referred because mm-hmm. it's like destroying the eye, not just like the the functioning of the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the earliest mention of cancer treatment. Uh, is actually even older. And the reason why it's not the oldest mention of cancer generally is because this might not be about cancer. This might be about other types of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this comes from the Edwin Smith papyrus that might be as old as 2,500 years BCE. The original copy might be that. The, the Edwin Smith papyrus is probably a copy of an older fragment that we don't that don't, we don't have. We think that the older fragment is this old. I also, I remember the Edwin Smith papyrus from a previous yes. episode. Because I was like, hold on, why is it called the Edwin Smith? And then I remember it's the, it's the <laughs> it's English the guy, guy who, who discovered who, it. No, it's, a, it's the English guy who bought it from a guy in Egypt. Oh, right, right, right. He right. just bought it from like a vendor in Egypt. In, like, the and his name century. was Edwin Smith. And yeah. then he gave it to, an, to... To a museum? or He gave it to a museum. And then that museum gave it to another museum. And then in the 80s or something, some archivist... Like just found found it in their archive and was like, oh shit, this is actually really important. <laughs> in <laughs> his name, Edwin Smith. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guy who bought it was Edwin Smith. Okay. Because when he bought it, they didn't know what the text meant. Because mm-hmm. he bought, I think he bought it in the 1800s. But they didn't. The text was just like just hieroglyphs. Yeah. But by the time of uh, by the time of the rediscovery, the, the text could be deciphered, and then we see a bunch of like medical texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, this text is also representative of how societies in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia would have seen like medical practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the text is written in a way for it to be like this is sort of universal knowledge or like standard practice within medical doctors within that area. Um, it is the oldest surviving written document that deals with surgery, and it may have been written by a high priest to the god Ra uh, called Imhotep during the age of the Old Kingdom. But honestly. No one knows. <laughs> the fact that they speculate about like who could have written the original part of which the, the Edwin Smith papyrus is a copy of. Who knows? <laughs> like even the people who, who are academics on, on this papyrus specifically, they are like, I don't know. <laughs> Look at the nice papyrus and be happy. Be happy. That's all, that's all you get. Yeah. This papyrus though contained a description uh, of what cancer what a cancer was, like a tumor, and how to remove tumors using cauterization, specifically using a tool called a fire drill, which sounds extremely painful and very on-brand for ancient Egypt. Uh, They also treated stomach cancer with boiled barley mixed with dates and cancer of the uterus with a mixture of dates and pig brain uh, inserted into the vagina. Um, So thanks Sobek that we're not there anymore. Who's Sobek? Sobek is, the, Sobek is the ancient Egyptian god of sperm. Why, why are we it's, thanking Sobek? Because <laughs> it's, it's a joke on uh, Twitter to thank Sobek. 
uh, when talking about ancient Egyptian gods. Oh, it's okay. it's a joke. I'm that... not very much on ancient Egypt Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'll take your word for it. He also is responsible for moving the sun around around the sky. Isn't that Ra? Apparently not. <laughs> I think Who the Ra, fuck is Ra? I, I think, I think Ra uh, might just be the god of the sun, but he's not in charge of moving it. Oh, wait. Isn't Ra the sun itself? Maybe. I don't know shit, honestly, about this. All I know is that Sobek is the god of sperm. Okay. That's the only thing I know for sure. Uh, I know this thanks to, I know this thanks to uh, Harris Bomber Guy from YouTube. But this, this knowledge didn't become like vastly popular throughout the world. Before I mean, before we get to the Greeks specifically, I want to also mention some other areas of the world, um, because from 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 the Edwin Smith papyrus and the Code of Hammurabi, like knowledge around cancers doesn't really progress that much. There's not a lot of like science done about it until the Greeks, and even then it's very limited. But I want to quickly mention Indian and Chinese views on cancer as well. So around 1100 BCE, doctors in China. Uh, are referred to as treating diseases that could be cancer in the writings of the Zhu dynasty. So they might have had some clue as to cancer a bit more. We don't have a lot of details, unfortunately. And in the Indian story, the Ramayana, it is described how you can limit tumor growth using arsenic paste, which sounds very, very painful and like not good. But arsenic paste actually it becomes standard practice uh, during ancient tumor treatment uh, because it it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but our modern understanding of cancer comes, as it always fucking does in medical history, from the Greeks and our old friend Hippocrates, who described multiple kinds of cancers, including breast cancer. Hippocrates was not as smart as the old Egyptians, though. He did not have the same treatment methods. He did not have the same uh, amount of study around it. But he did come up with the terminology that we use today. For example, he calls cancer carcino which got translated into Latin as cancer, which means crab. And it always referred to crab because of how Hippocrates described the shape of some cancerous tumors, with veins stretching outwards from the tumor like legs on a crab. <laughs> I love how they named things back then. Like It looks oh, like a crab. It kind of shaped like a crab. Reminds me of last night's dinner. It's crab. Crab it is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so th- that's why it's called. That's why they call it crab. Because like I've heard myths on internet say that like oh they thought that the crab was mythically connected or like the, the if you ground up crab meat that could help with cancer. No, it just looks like a crab. Like ancient peoples aren't that mystical. Like they're not. They're not. He's not sitting there like coming up with like ground up crab to treat breast cancer. It's just like tumor looks, looks like crab. Yeah. Called crab. I thought I remember hearing something about it being called cancer or crab because it sometimes developed like a crust that was hard so it was like the no. it reminded of the shell no <laughs> i i multiple sources maybe it's that maybe that's true but i found multiple sources claiming that the reason why it's why it's called crab is because it looks like a crab mm-hmm. with a cent with a central sort of like swelling and then like veins like stretching outside along the edge like the legs of a crab mm. Um, when good old Galen, though, got hold of cancer, he didn't like the term cancer, um, and instead used the term oncos, uh, meaning swelling in Latin, which is how we get our modern terms of cancer and oncologist. That's why it's not called a cancerologist, because cancer is, is technically Latin, right? But it's a translated from, from Greek, but oncos is the term that Galen came up, came up with. I like to think that Galen and Hippocrates 
I mean, I know that they lived in different periods, mm-hmm. but I like to think that Galen didn't like Hippocrates. <laughs> and he was like, stupid motherfucker. Bitch, I'm going to come up stupid with my old own. Greek. <laughs> Own term and it's gonna be better. It's gonna be better, Onkos. And but during this time of Galen and Hippocrates, they believed in the humor theory, which we mentioned before in the podcast many times, many 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 times. And Hippocrates believed that cancer was caused by too much black bile in the body due to bloody nipple discharge in cases of breast cancer, a theory that remained for a long time. And neither Hippocrates, nor Galen, nor most other doctors of the age advocating for actually treating anything other than very, very early stage cancers due to the risk of the tumors returning. Any treatment, any surgical treatment, was seen as being too risky and not being very successful. Even with arsenic paste and cauterization and those methods that they had available to them, they saw it as like, okay, it's so- going gonna to come back anyway. Oh, okay. But wait, so they didn't try to treat it at all? like Unless it's very early, every, very they early. did not recommend doing okay. it. They probably tried occasionally, mm. but the success like rate not, was not very worth. low. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But this is not where our story ends, because today we're talking specifically about breast cancer, where the Greeks and the Romans fumbled the bag, but the Chinese got it, because they can, <laughs> they're coming back again, because around 250 BCE... Chinese doctors describe the stages of breast cancer, including initial signs, symptoms, and prognosis. And it was described in the Nei Xing, or the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. It also contains some treatment options, but these include acupuncture and diet, so who knows how successful they actually were. The prognosis includes description of how tumors metastasize, which is the earliest record we have of that specific part of breast cancer actually being mentioned in in medical text. But for almost a thousand years from this, this is what we had to work with. That is until the 1500s and medical science progresses a bit more. Da Vinci is cutting up bodies in Italy, as he loves to do, and in 1595 the compound microscope was invented and previous methods of treating cancer are becoming more and more refined. Better cauterization, better arsenic pastes, and so on. The, the treatments are becoming more and more, gradually more and more successful. And in 1697, John Adrian Helveticus developed a technique for curing breast cancer that combined many of the techniques that had been begun in the years previously. Finding information on this guy is fucking impossible, by the way, because there are so many famous doctors named John something Helveticus at this time <laughs> in the same area, one of which is this, is this guy's kid who has his exact same name, and who did very similar stuff and is actually more famous than him. <laughs> um, so googling this guy was impossible because it kept coming up either his son or his competitors. Uh, but it was this guy. This is a Dutch doctor named John Adrian Helveticus. And his technique involved clamping down on the breast at the root with a tool that he called tenaculum helveticus. And depending on the tumor, either cutting into the breast and performing a lumpectomy or slicing the breast off entirely for a mastectomy, and then cauterizing the, the wound. Thinking they, about mastectomies and lumpectomies in like the 16th century or 17th century mm-hmm. is... There's a picture of it. There's, uh, no, it's not a picture, but there's a painting of it. Uh, and it looks <laughs> it looks both silly and horrifying. Like yeah. the, the first impression is like, oh, that looks weird. And then you realize, and you're just like... Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I don't like that at they all. They still it's um, quite a horror, horrific picture. Yeah, they still clamp down on the breast to do like breast imaging mm -hmm. these days. I don't know if you've seen those pictures, oh, yeah. but like they they clamp the breast or the breasts uh, between two sheets of glass, mm -hmm. um, which uh, there's something about it that just like oh yeah. And it, like also, how how do you do it if like the person is flat chested? So this, I guess so I guess that's tool, not available. I guess it's not available for you if you if you don't have any tit. <laughs> don't I, don't, like I don't like it. Oh, if you look up this painting, you're not gonna like that either because this tool is basically you know like one of those like tools that you use to clamp down on like a horseshoe to like drag out the, the oh. nails and stuff, like a like a like a gripper thingy, like a tang, like a tangs. Like at this point, I'd rather just die. Um, and, it's a circular thing that sort of like wraps around the tit and sort of like really squeezes it oh. like that. And then you have like four people who restrain the person because there's no anesthetic during this time either. And then there's a there's a there's a bowl of like hot coals with the bronze like knife things connected so, to it. So both for the cutting and for the cauterization, because they cut and cauterize at the same time. Like a big ham. <laughs> <laughs> like they cut into this tit like a big ham. And then they apply um, arsenic paste. That's horrible. And that's horrific. I bet you and this was work. And this was like a miracle in, in medical advancement. Yeah. This was like good. So this method actually became uh, somewhat popular for a short time. Uh, but it was quickly dropped by doctors in favor of non-treatment. Um, all yeah, they, and they all, saw what they were doing to women. They're like, like, this, this, this can't be a like. Come on, <laughs> um, cancer is better than this. <laughs> but honestly, though, that that's sort of what they came that they came to because, like, the I guess they came back the, too. Yeah, the cancer came back, and there was a pretty high mortality rate during, during the, the procedure. procedure. Yeah, so. It was seen as just too risky. That is why um, non-treatments were seen as, as better. Because then mm. it's like, sure, you're not treating it. But at the same time, you're not going to die right now. <laughs> you know? And, and suffer, if you and if suffer you, horribly. And suffer horribly well, yeah. for something that might even come back anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. But the advent of anesthetics made surgery a lot easier. And in 1804, Japanese doctor Seishu Hanaoka... Uh, managed to create an anesthetic potion that kind of worked, and, and that's how they describe it. Uh, and with that, he managed to perform a mastectomy with pretty good results. Uh, but even with this progress, the medical community was slow to find a good way to do it. I want to also, in this part, also issue a correction to our episode on anesthetics, because mm -hmm. I think I mentioned like the first surgery that ever happened during anesthetic, and I think I don't know, I don't remember what it involved, but apparently. I've, I've, I've looked into it more because everything that mentions breast cancer mentions that the, this mastectomy is the first um, from a, earlier than what I mentioned in the anesthetic episode and by a Japanese doctor, which is mm -hmm. why this fact is often overlooked. So mm -hmm. I want to correct here that... So what did you say last time that, that um, I don't remember anesthetics was for, for, were first used for? You don't remember? I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But I, I think I remember it having been sometime like in the 1820s, 1830s. Mm -hmm. Um, but this happened in 1804, mm. so it, it is earlier. But the, the type of anesthetic that he used is not known. It's like a potion. <laughs> and that's why it's also also sometimes overlooked as being like, this is... It's not real anesthetics. It's not real yeah. anesthetics. It's yeah. just like a potion. But at the same time, they used anesthetics throughout history. So I think it's also like, where do you... Where do you draw where the line of like a modern anesthetic? Where do you start actually calling it anesthetic? Because yeah. like they used opium 
in yeah. ancient times and that's also an anesthetic but like you know which one is a real anesthetic yeah or like a yeah, yeah like a per, or like, like a, a modern, good anesthetic exactly. yeah so anyway i just wanted to mention that uh in the 1850s a major statistical study was commissioned which showed that mastectomies had a mortality rate of upwards of 10% with many others having recurring cancers within 8 years leading to a lot of conflict within the surgical community many doctors still advocated to not do mastectomies at all that it was like a like a like a dead end type of surgery uh while some saying that they just needed to adapt the procedures and improve upon them and the debate would rage on and on and on and during this time it would really depend on the individual doctor that you got to see like to see what kind of procedure that he would prescribe to you uh especially if you were in America apparently because then it would really vary like from from med from doctor to doctor completely randomly like there was no consensus whatsoever for of what to do and then in 1894 american doctor william halsted published a paper advocating for a specific type of mastectomy that involved removing the entire breast any suspected tissue connected to the breast as well as the pectoralis major muscle and he developed this theory to include even more muscles and this technique had a much higher success rate and a relapse rate of less than 7% which was unmatched by his peers. Uh this is called the Helsted radical mastectomy and became the gold standard for like quite a long time. Uh around the same time, actually the same uh year, a Scottish doctor, George Beatson, discovered that when he removed a patient's ovaries, her tumors shrank. And after he published his findings right after Helsted, doctors began using both techniques at the same time to maximize their success rate. and the double removal of ovaries and breast tissue became the gold standard of how to treat breast cancers. And do you know why they did that? Cuz of the thing you mentioned yeah, where Yeah, cuz ovaries produce estrogen, estrogen and yeah. also breast tissue also produces estrogen and yeah. fatty tissue produces estrogen. So like, you know, you remove the source of estrogen, it might improve um, like your chances. prognosis, yeah. yeah. I like to think that they didn't actually know why, but they just like some like one day one of them was like What if we, what like, we take the ovaries out? <laughs> Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Oh, it shrinks. Oh, interesting. They had, before, they had removed that, so many other yeah, ones. Yeah, before like then the, they one lung, the lungs, just like, mm, yeah, mm, the half of a kidney. Yeah, just like mm, unaffected. It doesn't work. That's science for you. <laughs> Doctors after Halsted and Beatson tried to improve on the technique, like adding more muscles to potentially remove or removing more suspected tissue. but that showed no improvement on survival rates which led to a shift in thinking around breast cancer so far the cure had been surgical but it was realized within the medical community that medical improvements would be the way forward to further improve survival rates especially when x-rays were discovered by Wilhelm Röntgen in 1895 and by medical improvements i mean like drugs rather than surgical improvements like cutting <laughs> like thanks for clarifying <laughs> what you mean by surgical and x-rays were um a really good discovery partially because being able to see with x-rays like through tissue is a good way to find lumps mm-hmm. and to like detect wh- where things are uh, but mostly it was helpful due to the possibility of radiation therapy which doctors began experimenting with and early radiation experiments suffered setbacks due to skin damage and radiation burns but in 1937 Dr. 
Jeffrey Keyes managed to demonstrate that proper radiation therapy had equivalent outcomes for breast cancer as mastectomies had, and this led people to use combined therapies, being able to have less radical mastectomies, which meant that you could leave more tissue for patients. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to remove the like, part breast. of the chest yeah. muscle yeah. like yeah. Uh, underneath. This, along with developments in mammographies, helping to detect early stages of breast cancer, led to breast cancer becoming much less lethal than it was historically, even if it's still quite difficult to treat successfully today. Alright, so before we go into my final section, which is about the future of cancer treatments, maybe we should talk about some of the reasons cancer is so difficult to treat. Um, because cancer is, like, ridiculously, infamously difficult mm -hmm. to treat. Um, so first of all, cancer is extremely diverse. I mentioned it in the first section. Mm -hmm. Snowflake disease. A snowflake disease. And one very important characteristic of cancer is that in order for a cell to become cancerous, they have to develop mutations, which usually cause them to escape certain mechanisms the body has that typically prevent cells from going hog wild. But the cancer cells have these mutations and they just like escape these like checkpoints. Um, for example, there are certain pathways that recognize when a cell starts acting weird and causes the cell to undergo apoptosis or allows the immune system to tag and destroy it. But the, but the cancer... Apoptosis again. Uh, Self-destruction. Mm. But these mutations can allow the cell to not have that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so then it can just like mutate continuously. Destroy myself? I think I don't, not. I think not. I'd rather not. <laughs> I'd rather multiply way more than I should. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want to tag and destroy me? Mm, now I you destroy you. <laughs> I destroy you. Now you don't see me. What are you going to do? I'm invisible. I'm invisible. That's hogging, literally, up, hogging up all your estrogen. That's literally what they do. They, yeah. they decrease the expression of certain proteins that immune cells use to recognize cancer cells. They just like, they become invisible to the immune system. Yeah. Like it's fucked up. There's so many ways in which cancer like evades, like the, yeah. the body's like, ways to protect itself it's crazy like yeah. i could talk about this forever but anyway. but, there, but uh, correct me if i'm wrong here but there's also a reason why the cancers that we talk about are the ones that do that right because there are also if i if i remember correctly from like high school biology the body develops cancer like all the time mm -hmm. um but most of them are detectable by the immune system and mm -hmm. are corrected yeah um and our body just cures cancer yeah like Every day. Yeah. Um, well, not every day. Well, but yeah. The, 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 often, often enough. This and is then, something that a lot of people talk about, that like you'll probably develop cancer cells multiple times in your life, mm. but the immune cell, the immune system destructs it. Yeah. But then the, but then the ones that the immune system doesn't get, that yep. those are the cancers that we're actually worried about because those are, obviously those are the problems. Yeah. And I mean, the this, like, because this can kind of depend on a few different factors, like the kind of mutation that it is, right? Like if, mm. if a cancer cell develops a mutation in some sort of protein that allows it to proliferate super fast, then the immune system can't catch it like yeah. fast enough. Or if it develops a mutation in some sort of like like in, in, in some pathway that regulates apoptosis and then it doesn't self-destruct. Yeah. That's another way. So it really depends on like the kind of mutation that it acquires. Um, and I guess also like how, because like it's also, you know, you're more likely to develop cancer as you age. So it can also have to do with like how aged your immune system is, yeah. you know. So there's a lot of different like reasons why sometimes you, uh, sometimes the cancer gets destroyed, sometimes mm -hmm. it isn't. 
But anyway, so like I said, certain mutations allow the cancer cells to go unnoticed or to turn off these protective mechanisms. And as the cancer cells multiply, which they do very fast, they uh, tend to accumulate mutations at a very high rate. So they reproduce fast and they also have a lot of mutations, yeah. like m way more than regular cells. Yeah. What this means is that the cancer or like the, the tumor is made up of tons of cells that all have very different characteristics caused by the different mutations. Um, for example, some might express a specific surface protein that the therapy might be able to target, but, but not all. Not all of them. Yeah. So maybe you use the therapy successfully to get rid of a portion yeah. of the tumor, but then the ones that didn't get targeted just like multiply and yeah. fill in the gap. Additionally, cancer cells have the ability to develop resistance to therapies. Great. Um, this is due to two of their main characteristics. One is that they proliferate fast, and the other one is that they acquire mutations at a higher rate than normal. I already mentioned it, yeah. but it's like, this is such... They uh, evolve past the things that you throw at them. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things. But the, the reason I, I mentioned these two characteristics is that it's like such a fundamental like such a fundamental trait of cancer cells and like it affects a lot of the things that they do and mm. a lot of the ways in which they are fucky <laughs> so i keep like mentioning it some of the cells are inherently resistant to treatment so you might kill some of them but then the ones that are resistant to the treatment will like replace the ones that were killed but also um cancer cells can also acquire molecular changes as you're targeting them giving them resistance to drugs. And this can happen, for example, by target genes acquiring mutations or the genes being expressed more or less, depending on what's in the interest of the cancer cells. Um, and I say interest, like, obviously they don't have like a mind. Yeah. Like, they're not like actively planning and plotting, <laughs> but um, I'm just using it as like um, for ease. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying it like that. Yeah. But for example... Um, cells have transporters on their surface. They have like channels and doors that open and close to let uh, molecules come in and out of the cells. Um, and for example, cancer cells being targeted with chemotherapy drugs have been observed to overexpress the genes for these transporters, which means that they produce way more transporters on the surface than normal cells, which means that they uh, pump out the chemotherapy drugs Faster. Faster and... <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> hold on. <laughs> You're not supposed to be... Here. Hold on. This is... That's fucked up. As you start... That's like scarily smart of a, of a exactly. collection as, of cells. As you learn more about cancer, this is the reaction that you have for every single thing. Because they have so many like incredibly smart ways in which they like change like evade to evade yeah. like protective mechanisms and that's what that's what's so fucked up about cancer cells like they're so smart and they change so fast that like no matter what you do to them they will find a way to change to, like, and it, to yeah. like dodge it and that's why it's so fucking hard to treat them what the fuck but now we'll talk about the future of cancer treatment and how new developments are attempting to overcome these challenges There are lots of very exciting developments in the field of oncology, and today I'm going to be talking about four examples, but of course the list is always growing mm -hmm. and um, the, the episode is not exhaustive. Um, one of them is the wider application of genetic testing to determine the molecular characteristics of cancer cells that could be successfully targeted by certain treatments or that could indicate the behavior of the cancer 
um, or like prognosis. Certain proteins expressed on the surface of cancer cells can already be analyzed using immunohistochemistry, which is where the proteins or like specific proteins that you're interested in are stained with antibodies, but just like, you know, they, they are dyed basically. Um, and so you can see, like you can take a sh like a slice of the tumor, you can dye it, and you can see whether or not it ex expresses these proteins. Like usually those proteins are ER receptors or E estrogen receptors, uh, progesterone receptors, uh, HER proteins, and like a few others. Yeah. Um, but genetic testing can give a more complete picture of each of each individual case, and also you know it can tell you if the patient has potential to benefit from certain therapies. Or it can inform the patient about whether they might be a good candidate for clinical trials. That's yeah. another thing that, you know, is always developing. And there's always like, because because cancer treatment is so effective, like it's really important that the people who actually participate in the clinical trial have the right cancer characteristics, mm -hmm. because otherwise it wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Because if they're if you're not, if you're not a good fit for the trial, then no. it's not going to help them anyway. It's not going to help them, and it's not. It's like it's a, good for the science. Either. No, it's like, like it's a friend. Yeah, exactly. It's just a waste of time. Um, Janky and chain. <laughs> the cancer is janking or chain. <laughs> Cancer's like, haha! You thought I'm, you thought you'd be effective against me, bitch. Yeah, a lot of um, oncology and cancer treatment is the cancer jerking your chain. Yeah. <laughs> It's not funny, actually. It's not. It's quite horrific. Um, anyway, an issue with genetic testing is the fact that if you take a tumor sample, um, you'll have to... So you have to extract the DNA or the RNA from the sample. But before you do this, you have to lyse the cells, which is basically like um, break the membrane and take out the DNA and the RNA. And then mm. you like mix it up. So then you have a slurry of the cells that you extracted. But that means that like because different cells express um, different genes at different levels, then you, what you get is not really representative of each individual cell. Because yeah. like some cells might not express the protein at all. Some cells might express an entirely different protein that might be a candidate, but they're in a different part of the tumor mm. that you didn't take a sample from. So mm. like, it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say. It's, it's just like, it's just hard. But... You know, it's still useful. Um, genetic testing can also indicate whether the patient is carrying heritable mutations, which can be passed to the patient's mm -hmm. children, and can also inform the patient themselves about whether they carry any genes that may increase the risk for developing other independent cancers, um, because some genes are linked to different kinds of cancers. Mm. Like I said earlier, the, the BRCA mutations, they increase your risk for ovarian cancer, colonorectal cancer, if I remember correctly. So it's good to like know yeah. what, what, what you got going on. Yeah. Because if you have one, you're <clears> also it might in higher risk of getting other ones. Yeah, too. if you have certain mutations. Another interesting development that maybe you've heard about is something called the chimeric antigen receptor T-cell treatment. It's uh, known uh, for short as CAR T-cell treatment. Um, and the way that it works is that T cells, which is a major subtype of immune cells, are taken from the patient and are genetically engineered to include a chimeric antigen receptor, which is a receptor that helps the T cells attach to a particular cancer antigen. So they make them very specific to to like cancer proteins yeah. that are like expressed on the surface. So in, in another protein which activates the T cell when the receptor is bound. Um, so the CAR T-cell binds to the cancer cell, it activates and then multiplies and rings the alarm bells so that all the other T-cells can come and, like, mm -hmm. go 
go is, bananas, go ape yeah. on this cancer cell. So this is like a, a searchlight. Oh, a, what, what? This is like a searchlight that you like that you can aim. You aim towards the cancer cell specifically mm-hmm. to sort of let your immune system know that like, hey, mm. there it is. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. make it visible again. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. It's um, it's just a lot more targeted and more efficient if yeah. you t- if you like get the T cell and you exactly like you said like there it is yeah. <laughs> and then it knows where to go and who to attack. Mm. It's like a la- laser pointer mm-hmm. for the cat that is your immune system. Yeah. So yes. There, go get it. <laughs> yeah. And that's how you can cure cancer. Um. Yes. Yeah, and like these T cells can be engineered to contain receptors specific to a variety of cancers, but not all cancers are eligible for this type of treatment. And it's mostly used for a few types of lymphomas and leukemia, so mostly blood cancers. Mm. Um, I think with solid cancers, it doesn't really work super well because, don't quote me on this, but I think it's because like they're solid, the T cells can't really enter um, like they can't penetrate the tumor. Yeah. So then the um, inside of the, like past a few layers of cells, like it can't get inside. Yeah. I think that's why. Makes sense. But anyway, this is not an easy process. Like it's not so easy to just like, oh, like take the T cells out, like quick genetic engineer engineering, put them back in. Like it doesn't, it's not that easy. Yeah. So the T cells that are collected have to be healthy and they can't be affected by previous treatments. So usually the patient will have to interrupt all the cancer therapies, therapies that they're undergoing. So you need to take a break. And so that needs to be done uh, when the cancer is not active. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't know what that means. Like, how can a cancer not be active? Um, I think this, yeah. I think this is something that physicians know yeah. better than I do. Sometimes they, sometimes they can't just sleepy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is like, the more I learn about cancer in this episode, it's like the more wild cancer is. I know. Because one, it, it, it learns and adapts mm-hmm. from, from chemotherapy. And also, sometimes it's not active. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just like, mm, I'm asleep. <laughs> um, That's not, like, this is like weirdly positive. This is like this is like one redeeming trait that cancer has. That, it gets that, is, that sometimes it's it's less awful than than it could. But the thing is, like, be. it is unpredictable. So you can like think that the cancer is not active and like put a break in the therapy and then and realize. Then it sneaks up on you. Yeah, and then realize the, like the cancer then becomes active and like metastasizes, and you're like, That's oh shit, up. you know, like I don't know. I I don't think it's. I don't even know how you would know that it's not active. Like, I don't know. I think it's crazy. Um, I'm more on the side of the, I'm more the person who actually engineers the T cells. So I don't know. You don't have to deal with, I don't, deal you don't have the, to deal with, Yeah, <laughs> you're not part of the people who have to find out if the cancer sleeping or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I probably would be able to find some info about it, but I, I don't know. That's above our pay grade. Um, go to medical school if you want to learn more. <laughs> anyway, so they have to. They have to stop stop the treatment for a bit, but of course that carries risks because if the cancer suddenly decides to wake up, then you 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 know you might get in trouble. But also, before the person is infused with the engineered CAR T cells, they have to undergo a short bout of chemotherapy called lymphodepletion in order to weaken the immune system because the infused T cells are a little bit different now, and the immune system can be like, oh, hold up, like, what the fuck mm. is that? And like. <laughs> Uh, hold on. Like, what the fuck is that? I I don't know. That's how the immune system sounds. In my mind, the immune system is like a jock, like a stupid jock. Yeah, that's. I also imagine that's a jock. 
Um, so nerd detected. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they... you're new in school. <laughs> yeah. But they're friends with the nerds in, at the school. They're just bullies against newcomers. I just like to think that the, that it's like really stupid. So like one of their friends comes in, but the friend is wearing a hat, and like they're not recognizing. What's wrong with you? Like who are you? Who the fuck are you? Yeah. <laughs> Beats the crap out of newbie detected. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. No, I'm your friend. <laughs> Takes hat off. See, it's me. <laughs> oh, oh. It's pointing towards like like a, a cancerous blob in the corner. Just like I'm here to point you at that guy. <laughs> And they're like, that's our best friend. <laughs> or they look over, who the fuck are you talking about? There's no one there. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so the thing that you need to do before you infuse the CAR T cells is you have to like deplete the lymphocytes to weaken the immune system so that the, the stupid ass immune system doesn't attack the new cells because also this type of therapy is fucking expensive. Yeah. So if the immune immune system destroys the new <laughs> genetically engineered T cells... Waste like, of time and money. Waste of time and money. Like, I don't even know how expensive it is, but this shit's expensive. Yeah. So you don't want that. Genetic um, engineering, generally, I feel like it's not cheap. It's not cheap. The treatment also doesn't always work. <laughs> Great. Um, and also the procedure can activate the immune system too much, which can lead to a cytokine release storm. In which no, case, that's not, that's oh, not good. It's not good. So this can actually put the person in like the ICU. Yeah. Um, this, uh, is it the ICU? The intensive, yeah, intensive, yeah, intensive care, care unit. Whenever, whenever the word storm mm -hmm. comes up in not medical good. store, in not medical good. history, it's not good. Mm -mm. I feel like we talk about immune storm a lot, yeah. but it's it's just like it's everywhere, you know. It's yeah. always causing trouble. You don't you don't want it. No. When the jocks uh, when uh, they win the big game and they celebrate too hard. <laughs> yeah, here's another example of immunotherapy use in cancer. The 2018 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to James P. Allison and Tasuko Honjo for their discovery of cancer therapy. Uh, by inhibition of negative immune regulation. I know this doesn't make a lot of sense right now, but you're gonna, I'm gonna explain what it is. It's radio static playing <laughs> in my head right now. Elevator music. Um, Internet dial up noises. So here's the thing we've talked about this before, but too much of the immune system is not always a good thing, right? I keep saying this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, if the immune system is too activated, it can lead to the destruction of healthy tissues and a whole, whole range of negative effects. Yeah. The body knows this, and it has developed breaks in the immune system to prevent that from happening. Not so dumb after all. Yes. There's a protein on the surface of T-cells called CTLA4, which functions as a break and inhibits T-cells from becoming too active. Um, however, when you have cancer, you want the immune system to kill it. So Allison and Honjo developed an antibody that could bind to this break protein and inhibit it, oh. uh, therefore making T-cells more effective. Ah, this is, this is like... The, the jock okay i'm trying to dumb it down for myself so the jocks win the game they they uh, the, the principal has made sure that they don't party too hard so they mm -hmm. don't burn the school down <laughs> but there's cancer in the school uh the cancer is just cancer there's cancer in the school and, and the principal knows this and you need to fix it so the principal just opens the door a little bit but like what if you celebrate in here boys <laughs> What if you come in here and have a little... What if you have, have a, a party little, here? I have, some, I have some tequila. Do you want? There's some more tequila in here. <laughs> and the immune system is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll do that. And then hopefully they burn the school down just a little bit. But with the cancer in it. With the cancer in it. Exactly. Um, I love that. So... This, and this analogy is actually helping me quite a lot. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, you, so it, it binds to this break protein and inhibits it. So basically you're inhibiting the inhibition. 
Yes. So two negatives make a positive. Yes. Um, and now the T cells can are f- free to unleash their full force mm-hmm. on the cancer. So these uh, scientists, Allison and Honjo, tested the antibody on mice and saw amazing results. The unbraked T cells completely destroyed the cancer in mice. I think they also did this around Christmas. So I think it was like an amazing, amazing Christmas a good Christmas miracle for for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also discovered another protein called PD-1, which has a very similar effect um, through a slightly different mechanism, but that's another like major uh, protein that they discovered. Yeah. Currently, there are other types of checkpoint therapy trials targeting lots of other types of cancers, but this kind of therapy also comes with some side effects, because of course. Yeah. Um, but they're not super like severe compared to other therapies. It's mm. mostly like fatigue, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and dermato- dermatological reactions. There are some like rare immune side effects, but you know it's it's generally a pretty well tolerated yeah. type of therapy. I mean, especially compared to like a lot of other cancer treatments, because yeah. cancer treatments are rough, very very, very rough. Yeah. So like, like, uh, yeah, like even body. all of these, if, if even if you had all of these side effects at once, it's like oh, so it's like as bad as chemo. <laughs> And even then, like, or, you know, chemo's worse in many cases. Chemo, yeah, I think that they, you lose, like, feeling in your hands over time, like, stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway. The, I, I, do you know how chemo works, by the way? No. <laughs> it's actually kind of I've interesting. Had, I've had several close family members undergo it. I do not know how it works. So, uh, chemotherapy drugs target uh, cells that proliferate very often, which are cancer, cancer cells. But it's also why your hair falls out because hair, hair also follicle cells uh, are very like fast proliferating, oh. and also why you get like um, skin. What's it called? Like eczema. Mm-hmm. So like the skin cells are also very like fat, oh. like high proliferation rates, and they're also affected. Yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that's why you lose your hair. Oh, learn something new every day. Um, yeah, but so the scar T cell therapy. I just wanted to finish it. Yeah. It's pretty well tolerated. But uh, also, there's another issue with this kind of therapy. And this is another thing about cancer that's so fucked up. Certain tumors have... There's something called the tumor microenvironment. Because cancers are so... Or like tumors... Cancer cells are so um, different and heterogeneous that they they develop like a an environment that mm-hmm. is like the tumor like it's completely different from the rest of the body i think of it as it's like an ecosystem almost. yeah i think of it as like a dark forest where all rules go out the window yeah so um this microenvironment has cells in it that reduces immuno cell efficiency so these even even though they're really activated these t cells just don't work inside yeah. the inside the, the tumor here's another thing you're not gonna like this one. Oh god some tumors can successfully interact with the immune system oh, to God. promote proliferation no. and metastatic growth. They learn how to use the immune system uh, to their advantage. That's fucked up. Right? The jocks have switched sides. I like this always fucks with me that they can. I, and I think part of it is, uh, if I remember correctly, is because of um, like the immune system creates uh, quite a, an acidic environment and, and cancer cells thrive in an acidic environment. Mm. There's a lot of other shit too, but this is part of the reason. Mm. Or it's up. like one factor. That's fucked up. Um, the last thing I'm going to talk about is gene editing. And this is, um, you know, kind of a big thing <laughs> in um, life sciences, biomedical sciences. And there's a lot of like potential applications for gene editing and cancer treatment is like one of those applications. Mm-hmm. So you've heard about CRISPR-Cas9. Um, heard about CRISPR. Yeah, 
it's like that's just like the full name mm. so the discovery of this genome editing method by emmanuel charpentier and jennifer dudna was awarded the nobel prize for chemistry in 2020 a big um, you know made big waves and it can be used for cancer treatment in a few ways for example for gene knockout which means that the gene is rendered inactive knockout and in cancer, this can be applied to pathogenic genes, for example, genes involved in pathways promoting proliferation. So that's kind of cool, right? Like a, a, a gene is like promoting, like it, it's promoting cancer growth or it's like giving cancer some weird advantage. And so you just like target that gene. And you just like off. And you just like deactivate Flip it. Flip a switch. You deactivate it. Like that's so fucking cool. Yeah. It can also, this technology can also be used for targeted insertion of DNA segments. For example, to correct mutations and restore the cell's normal sequence. What do you think about that? Isn't that kind of neat? That's kind of neat. It's... Uh, I'm struggling to keep up with it, but I'm, it's neat. So, I mean, it's just like imagine restoring a cancer cell to its original shape. Yeah. That's fucked shape. up. That's, I didn't know that, that was even like in the realm of possibility. I think it's pretty difficult. Um, and so yeah. part of the... It's like uncooking an egg. <laughs> so part of like one challenge with CRISPR technology right now is that it's really hard to know where it's going to go. Like <laughs> if you're trying to yeah. n- to like make a cut in a specific region or insert something in a specific region, you can't always be sure that it's going to target what you wanted to target. Yeah. So then you can knock out some gene that actually is important. Or you can insert the gene segment somewhere entirely different. And then, you know, yeah. then it's like nothing. Or yeah. you can make it worse. But this technology can be combined with other types of therapies. For example, with the infusion of CAR-T cells. So remember how uh, one issue with that type of therapy was that the immune system can recognize it as like a foreign cell and then attack it so you could use uh crispr to knock out certain genetic regions in the car t cells to make make them like more palatable <laughs> to the immune system so you can like take them out change them crispr crispr cast them mm-hmm. and then put them back in and the immune system is like oh that's you that's fine <laughs> so like that's that's really cool you know like there's these different yeah. technologies and different approaches like you you put them together and you can solve different problems at the same time but you know it's kind of unpredictable and also there are some ethical concerns on using gene editing tools on humans Mm. Um, but we're also in the early stages of like gene therapy right like because i remember when i was a kid gene therapy was like still like fresh new science so i feel like we're yeah there's we just need to mm, give it a little bit of time to sort of like mature for sure like exactly so the technology is still pretty immature it's pretty young um, but I mean, it's it definitely has a lot of potential for a lot of different conditions. Like I think you can also use it for. I remember reading some example about it being used in HIV, um, and then um, anyway, you can use it for a bunch of different things. I think we just need to figure out how to do it safely, efficiently, and also figure out like the ethical considerations mm-hmm. uh, that go into it. I think it's just like you know, with this kind of science, this kind of like technology. It's moving so fast that we don't really have proper like, like safeguards, around, safeguards it, yeah. around it. And I think that's kind of a concern for a lot of people. Mm. Um, so if you're going to do that on a large scale, you need to... Yeah, you need to be there can't be like so much gray area as it is right now. Yeah. Anyway, that was my uh, section on treatments and the future of cancer. And now mm. you're going to talk to us about social impact. Yes.
So let's talk about stigma. <laughs> stigma. Because <laughs> um, when we talk about cancer in this episode, we've we've been talking about it like pretty matter of factly, mm-hmm. like very much like as a disease that people get that we cure, like yeah. like any as any other disease. But cancer does have quite a lot of stigma all over the world, and actually more um, more than you might think. Because I, I I learned a lot about weird weird social phenomenons that happen with cancer, but we'll get into that. Let's start with the fact that in in most Western medical tradition, there is an idea within medical ethics that uh, that most medical decisions are made between the doctor and the patient, and that the patient is always involved, like every step of the process, and that your decision making is done by like informed consent with your doctor. Like the doctor tells you what they want to do, and you have to consent to doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not the case for m- many other areas around the world. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for none. In some African medical settings, cancer screenings are not available to large segments of the population. So diagnosis can only be done in very late cases when treatment might be prohibitively expensive for the patient or their family and where success rates are much lower. And because of this, there's a culture of waiting and seeing how eager the patient is to actually know their own diagnosis and how, how the patient might take the news and like what kind of support system that the patient has. Uh, because if there's no way to actually take care of the patient, then why do they need to know? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's this idea of if the patient knows that they have cancer, they can't cure it, then you're just adding, you're just making that like the part of their life a lot more anxious and depressed. Um, but I feel like knowing that there's something wrong with you, like you have all of these mm-hmm. weird symptoms, but you don't you don't know if you have cancer or not. Mm-hmm. Like that would. Well, so if you want to know, right, then they will tell you. But yeah. like if if you're just like ah, I'm fine, then they're like <laughs> enjoy 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 denial, <laughs> because and this is a sort of like thing that has come up by the fact that like if there there are very few other options, right? Like if treatment was possible earlier or if screenings were possible earlier then then it would actually be productive to let the patient know earlier but at, at, the, at such a late stage then it's like telling them or not telling them it's mm-hmm. not really going to change the outcome mm-hmm. um isn't that also the case in the west sometimes i think there's um i don't know if it's the, i mean probably not for like cancer um but i know that like with genetic testing you can choose to not like mm. to not want to be told if you carry um, mutations in mm. specific genes, because like if that increases your risk for developing, then you're certain... going to be anxious about it. Exactly. Mm. And so I, I don't know. If, I think this is also one of the things that is kind of like a like a gray area because it's such a new therapy. But I, I feel like maybe that's not as strange. Like I think that's common in in that. Um, I guess yeah. In that case also. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Good point. And I guess in the end, it's also like, it's consent, right? Like you get the choice between being told and being not being told. So yeah, I mean, that that is also like, because that is not something that really goes into like a lot of, especially with cancer mm-hmm. in a lot of medic, Western medical settings. So like if you, like, sure, if you don't want to be tested in the first place, then that's sort of your choice. Like you don't have to get treatment, like no mm-hmm. one's forcing you to get tested in the first place. But there's this idea that like, if you go get tested, then you are you will find out the results yeah. rather than yeah. just being dismissed. It would be a bit weird to get tested and then say, like, actually, don't tell me what yeah, the test Yeah, but that, that's what I mean. But okay, like, so, but, but so they do 
so in this case, so they do get screened, they do get tested. But why, why would they get tested? If... Well, it, in very late stages. Um, Still, but you can choose to not get tested. Um, but I think it also it's, it also depends on the on the severity of it because it can also be like that. Like if you have like the patient can know that they have cancer, for example, but like is it going to spread? Okay. Is it going to kill me? Okay. okay. Is, how is it going to go? Okay. Like if if it, like you can like there are multiple realms of information, so okay. you can be like you have cancer, mm-hmm. and then like I'm not going to tell you. Do you, you want to know like yeah. how long you have? Like do you yeah. want to know how it's going to impact your life? And then the patient can be like, no, I don't want to know that stuff. So is, I, th- I'm very curious if that's also something that you can do in the West. I think you can, surely... but it's a lot more like up to request, I think. Hmm. Um, it's also, um, I didn't include this in the script as well, but like in during the 50s, there, in the America specifically, there was fostered a culture around the seas. It's called War on Cancer, uh, which was a social movement to really treat cancer as this, like a, like a very much like a disease that needs to be destroyed in a very like militaristic setting almost that it is an enemy of people and that that has led people to to undergo more like risky procedures to like cure it and to be more more willing to sort of like know all the details and take every opportunity available to them to sort of to sort of beat beat it mm. but there is also a stigma uh, around having cancer even in western pro- progressive countries <laughs> um because we can actually see this because in obituaries, they will very rarely spell out the cause of death if it's cancer. They will rather prefer to say that it's that the patient has passed due to a long illness. Because oftentimes people will think that cancer is something that a person has caused for themselves. So letting the world know that you have cancer or that, that, that your fa- family member has had cancer will sometimes lead to people think that like the person has unhealthy habits, which... Like, a lot of cancers are linked to, like, unhealthy habits, but not nearly as much as people think it is. No. And also not nearly... Um, and, and also something that I, that I read is, like, literally everyone has habits yeah. that, that, that increases your risk for cancer. Yeah. Like, it, it, literally everyone in the world, like especially a, in the West. A lot like, of them are not even things that you can control. No. Like, I'm thinking about, like, let's say smoking, eating, like... Red meat. Red meat and alcohol. processed meat, drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all, car- all carcinogens. Yeah, they're carcinogens, but there's also like pollution. Living in a city. Living in a city, yeah, it's like things that you can't really control. Yeah. So. So like even 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 though like a lot of cancers are like lifestyle related, a lot of that lifestyle is not like by choice. No. <laughs> that that is like as you say, it's it's it is it's part of what like where you live, how you live your life. And also, like, health is not, like, a healthy lifestyle is not accessible to everyone. So you could also, like, you could also say that even that is not always something that you necessarily have control over. Have control over. So that's bullshit. Yeah, I know, right? But people will often point out bad habits if if the person gets cancer. Mm -hmm. So they will oftentimes blame the patient being like, oh, Oh, you 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 drank a lot. Mm. Oh, well, then you kind of deserve lung cancer, don't you? But that's bullshit, because like, even people who never smoke get lung cancer, as in evidence by Breaking Bad. Um, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with um, somebody I used to be friends with about... like, So they were they, they thought that... Um, Swedish, by the way. Mm-hmm. They thought that, the, that if you have cancer, that is like preventable. Or like, you know, like if you get lung cancer yeah. and you're a lifetime smoker, then the government shouldn't have to pay for your treatment. Yeah, a lot of people legitimately think this. Because, like, well, you smoke, so you should, so you know, it's your why own. should we pay for your cancer treatment? Because yeah, you cost it yourself. But, it's like, so many people get lung cancer that never smoke. Yeah. 
And like, I, there, I mean, I there think... is a connection to it, obviously. Yeah. But like, you can't have that as a universal rule. Yeah. And also, people who smoke deserve fucking basic healthcare. Yeah, and also, like, I'm I'm still stuck on this thing about how like it's it's just not available for everybody to to be healthy. I'm also thinking yeah. about like people who you know like live on fast food. Bro, fast food is cheap and accessible. Not yeah. everybody has the time or the money to like, sp- like you know, buy to buy groceries every day, like buy organic food and cook free square mm, yeah. meals a day. So it's a little bit like, okay, well, that's easy for you to say, like, yeah. Mister, <laughs> like Swedish yeah. with a like good family who gives you money. Yeah, like not everyone has that luxury. Yeah, this is actually one of the reasons why like cancer is more pre- is more prevalent. Among poor people. Yeah. Because of, like, the lack of access. And also what I'm thinking is, like, not everybody has the time to go and get, like, regular cancer screenings. Yeah. Um, that's another thing. Like, maybe you get diagnosed later yeah. when the cancer is a bit more advanced yeah. and it's more expensive to treat it. It's just not... I don't know. I, I got pretty... Got miffed, heated. Heated but in that conversation. S- but the point here is that, anyway, the, like, the stigma is very stupid to have. Yeah. But there is still this, like, stigma around like a lot of cancers especially because a lot of people don't understand that there are various kinds of cancers and that it's not just lung cancer it's not just lung cancer and it's also like most cancers have nothing to do with lifestyle choice mm-hmm. like even 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 if you can't help those lifestyle choices most cancer i think 60 percent at least has nothing to do with lifestyle choice mm-hmm. it comes from genetic mutations or like other things that you do not have control over mm-hmm. um but there's also self-stigma where people who have lifestyles that could lead to higher rates of cancer don't have as much of an awareness of their own health because they fear what the results might be, leading to underreporting the people who might need it most. So if you don't smoke, you might not mind checking your lungs for issues, but if you do smoke, even occasionally, you might not want to like, get checked because if something is wrong, you're going to feel guilty about, about your lifestyle choices. So you'd rather just like, I'm fine now, why mm-hmm. bother checking? Mm-hmm. And this, this, and like, again, this leads to underreporting compared to the general population. And this stigma rears itself in really strange ways as well. And this is where we're going to talk about uh, talk therapy, Mm -hmm. which happened in the 1970s in the US. There was a popular theory in the 70s that cancer was caused by bad attitudes, (laughs) such as a bad mood, depression, anger issues. Uh, And that if you had cancer, you had somehow summoned it yourself and you sort of deserved to have it because you're like in a bad, you're in a bad mood. I love that. I love how depression is your fault, and also <laughs> depression can- gives de- also depression, cancer is your fault yeah, because you're depressed. Yeah, depression caused cancer is also your fault. Like shit, just like <laughs> shoot me in the head. <laughs> just shoot me in the head. Um, <laughs> Put me down like this, behind the house. Uh, this theory involved talk therapy with patients. Uh, with a lot of patients being scammed out of real treatments by hacks who took all of their money to talk it out and improve their mood. And while it's great to give patients hope and like improve their mood, it doesn't do shit for cancer. Cancer does not give a shit about how you feel. Sorry. Just doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> cancer does not care about your feelings. I, I looked it up because like I, I always thought that there, that there was like, well, if you have a positive attitude, it's going to increase your chance. Even by a smidge. Don't. It doesn't. does not. Has no effect. There's no correlation. Mm. <laughs> from the stu- from the from the studies that I looked into, this there's just like the patient the patients feel better. That is true, and the patients like re- have better self reporting. Mm. But it has no outcome on what actually happens to the cancer. Mm. If, if if the cancer is going to um, get targeted better, or if it's going to be removed better, or if it's going to recur more often, does not affect that. Mm. The patients will report feeling happier and better, which is good. Like you want you want patients to be happy and have a good outlook. 
but that is purely psychological. It does not affect cancer. Well, cancer doesn't give a shit. I, I'm, I'm, I trust you, but I'm thinking that like you know stress, <laughs> stress wreaks havoc on our bodies, oh, yes. and I think that if you are able to somehow reduce stress, mm-hmm. it might. Mm-hmm. Because like stress causes inflammation in the body. Yes. Cancer loves inflammation. Oh yes. This might be one way mm-hmm. in which you could like. But he, here's the fun part. Mm. This is what this is why this positive outlook thing is making things worse because it causes it doesn't actually make stress. It causes stress because mm. here's what happens. Um, but okay, this, so, this so theory, I'm thinking maybe not about positive outlook. I'm thinking more about like you know like, like relaxation and relaxation happiness. and like let's say like if you take some smelling salts and they make you feel yeah. good and relaxed. Oh yeah, you can yeah. do that. Like it's but it's don't like, stop doing your regular treatment. No, 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 for yeah. sure. I'm not, girl. You <laughs> no, know no, that's no, not no, what I'm that's saying. What I'm saying. <laughs> um, but I'm just saying, like this kind of thing that like improves your mood and mm-hmm. improves your improve, improves your vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, good vibes only. Like maybe it doesn't um, it doesn't directly like affect the cancer positively. But I think that like your maybe like your body will settle. Um, in a way that is conducive to a better pr- prognosis. Yeah, but, that, that, I mean that, that that's that's fair, mm-hmm. and I think it's fine to have like that outlook in itself to sort of like it's good to be happy. <laughs> I love being happy. <laughs> it's good being happy, but a lot of people have this view that you need to be happy no. because if you're sad, it's going to lead to worse outcomes. And this is this has actually been uh, this has actually led to cancer patients becoming feeling more anxious mm. when when they're not happy oh my god i'm not um, happy like i'm gonna make my cancer yes, worse for, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. honestly because mm-hmm. people feel guilty over the fact that they're not feeling that they're not like taking this like mm, in their I stride and, and that mm. they're sort of happy about it and doctors have said that it's better for patients to be to have fully natural feelings about yeah. being sad and depressed about their illness than it is for them to be anxious about yeah. not being happy about it because anxiousness causes more stress which is worse depression is sad but it's a natural feeling exactly. to have and it's not going to cause as, ma- as many issues so like encouraging cancer patients to be happy might actually make things worse. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. a huge proponent of validating your own feelings yes. and accepting that your feelings are mm-hmm. like whatever you're feeling is okay. Yeah. Um, Turns out that that's actually a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Turns so out I that would that's never, what you should do. Yeah. I would, yeah. Like, Forcing happiness doesn't work. Who knew? I think the worst thing, yeah. I mean, this is completely maybe it means it's it's kind of kind of related to cancer but not really but i think that the worst thing that you can say to somebody who's struggling is like you know cheer up you just need to have a good attitude and like it's gonna be okay Mm -hmm. and like all that shit i go ape when somebody says that to me and (laughs) And i can't imagine saying that to a cancer patient and people do say that to cancer patients a lot like when someone when people get cancer like a lot of people a lot of people will give them the advice of just like just you be know, positive. Just be, just be positive. You'll beat this thing. Mm-hmm. But like, the, like that attitude. Does, yeah, that like attitude can't... does nothing to actually help. It no. it actually makes things worse. Yeah. Like it's better to be like cancer sucks. Yeah. And cancer does suck. Like yeah. it, it's success. And, and it's like there's that's so a many normal and natural feeling. To have. And I can imagine like there's so many different emotions and feelings that comes with cancer. Like I can like sadness and grief and anger yeah. and guilt and like it's such a difficult. I mean, of course, it's like so. Um, so hard on your body, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's it got to be so, so difficult emotionally. And yeah. you just have to try to like process those feelings yeah. in like a 
in a, in a healthy way. In a healthy way, and that means accepting them, I think. Yeah. Um, Doc- tune in doctors for more, agree with you. more therapy advice from me and Salem. <laughs> Leech fest only. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I've learned over the years that you can't run away from your feelings no. and you have to feel them. And you can't force happiness. And you can't force happiness. No. It does not Som- work. And sometimes it's okay to just admit the shit sucks. It sucks. And cancer sucks. What a good end to the episode. Yeah. Cancer sucks. Cancer sucks. But, um, yeah, that's it. Cancer oh, sucks. Cancer sucks. Goodbye, folks. No, but we are make- we're making improvements and things are getting better. Because, mm-hmm. like, we've always had cancer. So, like, mm-hmm. survival rates are always improving, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, it's not perfect yet. No. Um, yeah, and we're hoping that we will soon move towards a world where even more cancers are treatable. And even now, like, you know, some cancers have a pretty, like, bad prognosis. But uh, we know more about like screenings we know more about uh, like genetic factors that carry risk Mm -hmm. so it's better than it was and hopefully it's only gonna get better okay that was our episode on cancer mia how do you feel bummed out (laughs) cancer sucks but you know it's it's a huge it's a huge illness. It's a huge part of medicine. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a major cause of mortality and morbidity in the world. So, you know, we, we have to talk about it. And I hope, you know, it's also interesting. I hope that my part was not too technical. No, it's fine. I, I, love, think I love learning. You love learning. I think it's always interesting to take these things that I learn about in school and maybe things that I work with and sort of try to make them understandable, you know, to somebody who maybe doesn't. Um, work with it directly yeah science communication (laughs) yeah all right so this was our episode on cancer hope you enjoyed it if you did please rate us (laughs) uh consider five stars five stars please somebody rated us i think four stars and now we have 4.9 and i am extremely confidence of the podcast has collapsed yeah it's chaos over here i mean it's, it's fine it was gonna happen at some point but it made me a little bit sad so you know Make number go up. And also, if you... I don't think you can. Because, like... If, if you get one, it's, like, ruined forever. Yeah, well, you can. You can. It's, it's like, the, it's like the, the average human has less than two legs. Like, you can't... We can't ever have an average no. of two legs. No. Because... Because one it's, person it's, at least. Yeah, exactly. As long as there's one person with less than two legs, it's never going to be two. So, like... And I think the same thing is true here. I think we're well, just always going to be maximum of 4.9. Maybe. But keep rating us five stars. So stay at 4.9. Because it's the best most people can, can get. Yeah, iTunes. and yes, and um, you know, if you like this podcast enough to want to support us on Patreon, that's also super appreciated. Otherwise, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will see you on the next one. Bye bye.